I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is a stick with a point. Imagine running one of the greatest, most intimate, and busiest concert halls in the world during a pandemic. Where on earth would you begin? How on earth could you keep your sanity? Well, those were exactly my own thoughts when I first considered approaching this week's guest. The results were so much more than I expected, and a real inspiration for good times as well as for bad. I hope you enjoy it. John Gilhooly became executive director of Wigmore Hall in 2000 and in 2005 took on the additional role of artistic director. At that time, he was the youngest director of an internationally acclaimed concert hall. John, welcome. Thank you very much indeed. So uh, we're recording this in the middle of September and everybody knows what's going on around the world. You are running one of the most prestigious concert halls in the world what's it like for you well it's it's tough and it's busy but it, there's no point in complaining um, lots of problems thrown our way uh, but we just have to get on and make the best uh, of, of the position we're in we have a hundred concerts for an audience between now and Christmas we started two days ago socially distanced going very well the audience all telling me as they leave they felt very safe and writing to me to say they felt very safe in the hall, entering and exi exiting the hall. We have uh, temperature checks, staggered entry times, people very carefully put into rows uh, and uh, rows then apart from them, uh, gaps all over the hall so that we can maintain one meter plus social distance circumference around individual audience members or couples or whoever a household is, is visiting us. Uh, clearly that doesn't make financial sense because a 20% house is no good when in, in, in the normal world you need 90% to break even. We're fundraising like mad to, to make up that difference because we're paying the artists their full fee. That is the most important thing we can do right now, uh, is to pay the artists their full fee. So broadcasting live on our website and sometimes in conjunction with BBC Radio 3 uh, means that we're, we're reaching a huge viewership and listenership and very many of those watching and listening are donating online and that those donations are going directly to the artist fees because we don't want to say, as some promoters are saying, if we have a 20% house, he should be performing for 20% of the fee. I would rather keep the doors closed than, than do that, actually. Well, I think that's a very creative response to this situation and I'm full of admiration for you because as music director of two orchestras here in the States, uh, we're facing enormous challenges to try and get the doors open. Um, we haven't succeeded yet, but it is that business model that gets in the way, that, that pesky need to, to raise money for, um, uh, for people's um, expenses, salaries and uh, all, all the likes. Yes, so, and we, we've had redundancies. We've, had, we've made six uh, staff redundant here already. And, you know, anybody who thinks it's a soft landing, I'm afraid, is, for Wigmore Hall is misinformed. But I really feel for anybody running an orchestra or an opera house because it's going to take a lot longer for them to get back on their feet. And, you know, nothing is as complex as staging an opera, even in the best of times. So 
uh, I really feel for, for colleagues at, at, at that level. We all have problems and, you know, some of us had good reserves or good endowments built up at the beginning of the pandemic. But, you know, the longer this goes on, and this could be an 18-month crisis, uh, at some point, all of us are in danger of running out of cash. Well, you've raised a very interesting point there, and is a vexed question over here. Um, the, the organizations that do have substantial endowments, do they dip into those endowments? Will the trustees or the board or whoever uh, use this as an occasion when the endowments has to be uh, tapped to, to a higher percentage than previously the case? Is that something you're having to resort to? Uh, yes, we've had to, to dip into our reserves. Some funds are designated and can't be touched, but I, I presume that we could look at, at that the legal questions around some of those funds. But then it means once the money is gone and once we're back up and running, the thing that that was meant to support can't happen. So there, there's a moral question there in that if somebody has left you some money in their will, for instance, with a particular intention, I'm not quite sure that we should be using that at this moment uh, but certainly anything that came in as an unrestricted gift is fair play and should be used uh, because uh, we're about 97% self-sufficient here. The orchestras and the other, the opera houses rely more on state funding. And there is a debate going on. It went on about 10 years ago with the government at that time that we should move towards the American model of fundraising. Uh, that's all easy to say. Uh, but the culture of giving is not such in this country yet that we can move to that model. And I think it's very dangerous if anybody says or anybody thinks that any organization here in the arts has had an easy time or that because we're good at fundraising, everything is okay. It's not. And it will take decades for organizations to get into that model of American giving uh, and, you know, that's particular to, to, to many big cities in the States, not necessarily right throughout the land. Uh, you know, we, we're not ready for that yet. And certainly even the wealthiest individuals I know have been hit hard by COVID. So it's not a good environment for major gifts. I think the irony of that is, of course, that whilst in the UK, people are clamouring for a reduction of state support, which is pretty low to start with and increasing the idea of raising funds privately, whereas in this country, exactly the opposite is argued for, that the arts make such a contribution to the economy that they're worthy of state support, government support, whether it's federal or from the individual states, or both, and that the challenges of raising private capital, which I as a music director am involved in a lot of the time, are becoming more and more onerous and um, such a distraction from, from what we're really doing. And that, that highlights the difference between there being um, music, per se, performance, and a music business. Uh, yes. So hats off to you for, for what you're doing. I want to go back a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, you said about the, the, um, the social distancing that's going on in the hall now. And for those people who don't know the wonderful Wigmore Hall, it, it is essentially um, an average size shoebox. Average yes, size it's, shoe, it's, it's a recital <laughs> venue and it's, mm. it's got a small stage, four recitals and about 550 seats. As I understand it, uh, Wigmore Hall was actually built at the beginning of the 20th century um, and was actually Beckstein Hall. And then the shenanigans of the First World War led to a change there. How did that happen? Yes, at the, at the end of the First World War, there was a very anti-German feeling in London. 
and the hall became Wigmore Hall because anything German sounding was, was seen as, as bad to the extent that leader recitals, things like Winterreise were sung in English or in French for 10 years after mm. the First World War in the hall and the Beckstein family, in, in my opinion, were badly treated at the time. Debenhams bought the property and uh, it's, it's had a kind of checkered history since then. It went through many ups and downs. Uh, very interestingly, in the Second World War, before he set up the Aldborough Festival, uh, Benjamin Britten premiered at least 25 of his chamber works here, and most notably the Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings. Uh, and then, of course, he set up Aldborough and, and, and all that uh, world, those commissions and those world premieres uh, moved there. And that's a forgotten part, that link with Britain. Uh, again, when the hall was in some trouble in the 1960s and there was talk about changing its purpose, uh, taking it away from music, he and Peter Piers uh, spoke out uh, in favour of the hall and their portrait hangs in the green room. It's the only portrait that we say is permanently there. Everything else moves around a bit uh, because my predecessor, William, made that pledge to them because both uh, Piers and, and Britain helped him and, and spoke up uh, to, to uh, endorse the need for Wigmore Hall at that time. So the venue has developed as a recital hall for exceptional artists, really, we could say, um, in terms of the, the worldwide perception. Uh, but you have a, an enormous, today, you have an enormous variety of activities going on there. Yes, we've got about a thousand events a year, some off-site, uh, at least 500 concerts in the hall itself. And uh, for a hall of 550 seats, it's wonderful to know that sometimes between Radio 3 and our own broadcasting, if we're working together, sometimes we have a million viewers or listeners live. So it goes wow. way beyond that local audience. And we've got a thriving community outreach and education program, which very much deals with the most vulnerable and, and those marginalized. Uh, we work with, with the homeless, with uh, rehabilitated drug users, with people living with dementia at all stages, including early onset dementia, which is a dreadful thing. Uh, and uh, also uh, children and young adults on the autism spectrum, uh, so uh, on, the, on the autistic spectrum. And that's work done in conjunction with the National Portrait Gallery, and that's, that's very useful indeed. Uh, so we work with schools and we have family concerts. We go out to schools and play a lot of music. We're just about to work at one of the London boroughs, similar to what Carnegie Hall does, working with young offenders at the time of their first offence, introducing them to music and the arts, or whatever they want to do, as long as it's small, intimate music making. It doesn't matter to us if it's a little bit closer to pop music. That's OK uh, if it gets them off the streets and if it helps uh, them uh, keeps them away from committing a second or, or further offence um, because we find very often uh, young people at the age of 12, 13 are often abandoned by the system. So we're, we're piloting that scheme, difficult in COVID time, and a lot of the work I've just described is actually going on still online uh, in COVID. And, and, and uh, it's been interesting to, to see how creatively uh, we, can, we can work around uh, those uh, projects. So the education work hasn't been the first to suffer during these difficult times for you. I think, again, that's, that's highly commendable. And of course, everything you just said to me gives the lie to the idea that excellence has to be elitist because there's, there's nothing elitist about the work that, that you're undergoing there and all the, the social interaction, which I think is absolutely fantastic. It, it leads me to... Um, to a question I was going to save till the end, but uh, um, let's get into it now. Um, do you feel some sort of sense 
of responsibility there uh, personally uh, in today's climate where um, uh, the social climate is kind of demanding that everything proves its relevance almost to as many people as possible. I, mean, I can imagine something like Wigmore Hall, which uh, has traditionally had this air of being um, rather removed from day-to-day -day life for, them, for most people. Uh, you must um, face these challenges. Yes, well, I think there are a few answers there, and the, the most important being that we, all of us in the arts, can be central to, to the recoveries. Certainly here in the UK, we can be central to the national recovery from the pandemic. And that in the past, and we've seen this over the summer, those denied access to the arts can feel locked out and left behind and ignored. And uh, I think more than ever, we have a responsibility to share what we do. So everything that I've described is available free online. So that means anybody anywhere in the world from any socioeconomic background, because diversity comes in many forms. It's, it's sexuality, it's gender, it's age. Just because somebody is a bit older, we shouldn't be writing them off. You know, there is a, there is a bit of ageism uh, and people in, in a way saying things, saying, being rude about audiences who are slightly older. A 70-year-old or somebody coming to us for the first time in their 60s when the children have finished university or whatever um, could well be a customer for 30 years. And I think, I think it's a bit offensive to say that that's an inferior customer in a way. And then all the work that we do with people from all races and creeds uh, in our learning programs is really important, bringing people to music and bringing people to the hall. And we have 25,000 tickets a year available at five pounds for anybody under the age of 35 from any background. Wow. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's very important that in our programming, we begin to reflect uh, the wider world. Uh, for instance, I was able to, to respond to social events and political events over the summer by uh, programming in, in, in the first week, in the next few days, Julius Eastburn's work. Now, he was a black composer, dancer, uh, pianist, vocalist who, who, who died abandoned and alone uh, of AIDS in 1990. And uh, his music has been rediscovered, but he was sidelined. He was stigmatized at the time. Um, it's wonderful that his music is there, but that's, that uh, is a symbol of, of somebody who suffered racism and stigma in their life and uh, a, a creative talent who we should be championing. Sim similarly, Coleridge Taylor, we celebrate, we've just recorded his, his wonderful nonette with our new uh, Chamber Ensemble in Residence, which is a very diverse group, the Kaleidoscope Chamber Collective. And uh, black soprano Elizabeth Llewellyn will bring with pianist Simon Lepper some of Coleridge Taylor's music to a lunchtime performance in the next week, complementing our earlier performance of, of Coleridge Taylor. I think it's very important that we uh, put music from all diverse backgrounds in front of our audiences. And to me, it's not just about uh, an Afro-American culture or, or an African culture. To me, bringing the Poland of music or, or the, the music of Poland or Czechoslovakia, any of these places, uh, is just as important. So we've got to take a very broad view of what diversity is and, uh, and make sure that, that we reach as many people as possible and we break down barriers. And the most important thing is that we get rid of any sense of elitism and that you, know, you don't have to read music to enjoy music. Uh, you don't have to have an encyclopedia in your brain uh, to get through a concert here. And hopefully these shorter concerts, certainly our experience online 
on Instagram, on Periscope, and on Facebook in particular, is lots of younger audiences from all sorts of backgrounds asking us questions about the music and interacting with us live online. For instance, last night, there were 45,000 people viewing a concert here in the first hour on wow. Facebook alone. And that was just on our Facebook page. It was being shared on Facebook pages all over the world. So we don't have the full figures in yet. So, you know, that would probably go up to 500,000 people watching on Facebook and all sorts of comments and questions and people who had never heard of the whole uh, interacting with us uh, from all over the world and very moving. John, um, you, you're the most incredible advocate. I, I, I don't think you've stopped for air in the last two and a half minutes and everything you said <laughs> has been absolutely fantastic. And I loved it. And I'm writing notes down here of little snippets of sentences I, uh, I'm going to use. Yes. Um, and you, you had one little phrase um, that you used in an argument that I tried to use, but that was inferior customers. I love that. I'm going to work that in because uh, I'm, you know, when people say to me, oh, yeah, yeah, you want money out of me to support your symphony orchestra? Well, that's classical music. That's for old people, isn't it? And first of all, it's not for old people. But secondly, old people can enjoy themselves. Yes, and your life is not over. And I think it's it's deeply offensive to say to somebody when they're 60, you're past it, and the next 20 years of life you should write write off. And um, in a way, we're, we're making them invisible. No, we shouldn't be making any human being invisible. And so, you know, our work is from the cradle to the grave. We, we have events here for the under fives. They're actually our, our, one of our most popular learning programs. And... Uh, they love it. It's storytelling and music for, for young children and they come with their grandparents sometimes. But, you know, an, an older population is part of a diverse population and they have a lot to tell us. Uh, you know, just like an artist in his or her 60s bringing us the life experience of the Beethoven sonatas or a string quartet who have been together for many decades, bringing us Beethoven's late quartets would bring us a very different um, approach to that music enhanced by their life experience and by the trials and tribulations and the suffering and the joy of their life they would bring all that to us and that's what older people offer mm. fantastic i've been i've been making notes all the way through that oh. as well i can't give enough so, <laughs> um let's talk a little bit about you john gilhoody because uh, you started as a singer am i right Yes, I, I stopped very early. Uh, we all trained as singers. I've got two siblings. My brother is still seen professionally in Ireland and my sister went on to study languages and, and psychotherapy. Um, I, I stopped singing when I was 23. I didn't like being in front of an audience. And uh, the diagnosis was that I was probably a held in tenor, so I would have had to wait a long time to, to actually earn anything. Uh, so, and I think it's very hard for somebody with, with, a, with a bigger voice for things to settle down. And, and uh, so I just love music. I've been attending chamber concerts since I was 10 or 11. We had a wonderful chamber series in our hometown. Uh, I was very lucky that that was there. It wasn't a particularly wealthy hometown, but it had a great music advocate uh, in, in one of the local schoolmasters. And so I heard Andrew Schiff, Michael Collins, Imogen Cooper. Uh, actually, I remember hearing Angela Georgiou before anybody knew who she was. I was a little bit older then, um, but still at secondary school. And, uh, so, and that was an interesting link. And uh, you know, I wasn't to know at the time, but the person who was promoting that was actually working hand in glove with my predecessor, William Lyne, here. Uh, because very often back then, they used that concert series and various concerts that this John Ruddock, the gentleman in question, put on over Ireland um, as a warm-up for a Wigmore Hall recital particularly from uh, Eastern European musicians. 
Uh, and uh, so I was introduced to Wigmore Hall without even knowing it. And you decided that going into initially some form of administration management was the way for you. Um, and thank goodness you did, because it's um, uh, the held and tenor world's uh, loss and, and, um, and music's <laughs> real gain, I would have said. Uh, but at the same time, you then changed your role somewhat at Wigmore Hall, didn't you? And, and you, you took on this artistic director role. Um, and obviously, you have a, an incredibly strong um, creative bent in you. Um, do you. Do you find that you've reshaped the offerings at Wigmore Hall in the, what, 15 years you've been doing that? I think that's for others to judge. I, you know, I, I, I do what I think is right. And uh, that's, you know, the public vote with their feet. So all of us as artistic directors live or die by our programming. We have to take risks. Uh, we have to gain the trust of the public. Uh, we've got to fundraise. I spend 50% of my time fundraising, but I think it's not for me to judge um, how the whole has progressed or not in the past 15 years. Mm, okay, so you're very thoughtful and modest as well. Going up all the time in my estimation. Fantastic. <laughs> um, I listened to, uh, well, watched and listened to um, a video you have on, on the Hall's website um a message to friends you describe them uh, friends of the hall the challenge of course for a director of a hall as opposed to the director of an entity like an orchestra is that you don't really have one collection of musicians that uh that the audience and your supporters can identify with you have a philosophy as well as a venue and the yeah. performers are an addition to that, if you like, and, and are, the, are the greatest variable in there. But you speak so um, directly and in a very engaging and endearing manner, calling everybody friends. I, I was, I was um, very taken by that. Is that an intentional tone you take when you, when you uh, communicate with the masses, as it were? Uh, well, you know, I think you get back from life what you give out. So you, you, it doesn't cost anything to be warm towards people. And we, we want a sense of warmth in this organization and a, a spirit of generosity in anybody we work with. And, uh, you know, right through from, from getting to know our audience, that, of course, helps in terms of, of goodwill and fundraising. Uh, those relationships are key. Uh, there is a regular audience here. There's an ever-expanding audience. Uh, and in a way, whoever the director is at that moment personifies the philosophy of the whole. I wouldn't say they personify the whole, but they personify the vision of the place and, and, and their own vision. And then uh, in due course, hopefully somebody else will come on and, and, and take that over. And that's, we tend to do long tenures here. My, my predecessor did from 1957 until about 2003. I'm not quite sure I'll stay as long. Um, but while you're in the job, you've got to live the job. It's a bit of a vocation, uh, not just a bit of a vocation. It is because you're, you're on duty all hours. I came in this morning. We were going live at one, one o'clock today on, on Radio 3. The concert didn't happen because the leader of the string quartet was stuck on the motorway. His car had broken down. Um, so I had to, he got here eventually. and we, we recorded the concert at half past one and put something else out live. But I had to go out and talk to the audience for a little while to, to, assure them that we would give them a concert a little bit later. 
but it was useful because I was able to remind them that, you know, this guy is actually quite poor. String quartets aren't uh, very rich and he's driving a banger of a car which has broken down. That's why he's late. So that if they're donating to us, they know the money is going to these musicians, particularly freelancers who, suffer, who are suffering. So, you know, I think I've got to be open and honest and come across in that way. I've got to be genuine in my communication as all of the staff here. You know, and I remind them all the time that we are all, you know, in a way, the chief executive has to be the principal fundraiser. We've got a wonderful fundraising department and a wonderful director of development here to back all of that up. But every member of staff is a fundraiser and every interaction you have, you know, you could be chatting to somebody in the foyer who, who, who would leave you a substantial amount of money if they love the place and if they're treated properly and their will. And also, you know, right through lockdown, as we phoned people, uh, to cancel concerts, particularly in March. There are a lot of people in isolation who were cut off from their families those, those early weeks when everybody was told stay at home. Sometimes we were, apart from their family, we were the only person who called, you know, to say the concert is canceled, it may be rescheduled, can we credit your account? And that was fascinating. And, and our box office staff, our frontline staff in a way, um, had to learn very quickly how to deal with that and to deal with people in, 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 in sometimes extreme moods because of the those dark circumstances of of early lockdown but you know that human element won people over very much that's very telling isn't it and if you were to try and predict the future and i don't just mean through this current uh, situation but the future of wigmore hall which is well over 100 years old now as a, as a venue where would you like it to be heading? Well, clearly, we, we've, we are going to become our own broadcaster. We will want to broadcast with Radio 3 and Classic FM and anybody else in the world who wants to do that. Uh, I hope that we can build on our fundraising. I hope we can get our balance sheet back to where it was on the 15th of March before we close down on the 16th. That would be, you know, that's going to take a few years. Uh, that we might acquire some additional space in better times because our foyers and our public spaces are quite limited and quite cramped. You know, we had set 2028 as a, a target for that sort of thing. Um, we will revisit that and see if that's still a good idea or not. Uh, I'm not quite sure we'll come back initially with 500 concerts a year, but obviously we, we will want to rebuild. And, and, and uh, it's interesting in that in many ways, the profile of the hall, while it was closed and at this particular moment is the highest I've ever seen it. And our membership numbers have risen 10%. So, you know, I said during lockdown, why are we more famous closed than we are, we're open? So there's, there's something telling in that, in that, you know, the fact that we had to reach out to, to the entire world in a way has, has put us at not only at the, at the beating heart of, of the UK's classical music life, you know, it probably always was, but it's now certainly placed there, but internationally as well. It's given us a very different profile and we're interacting with people all the time. So that's the beauty of, of this new media world, this digital world. I think it's got many downsides, uh, but in terms of getting music out there and the intimacy of, of a chamber concert, that seems to work. Whether or not people will get tired of that as time goes on, we don't know. Whether or not they'll stop donating, we don't know online. So, you know, there, there could be a business plan there. Um, but it's very good for artists. It's also a way of building up young debut artists because the record labels aren't in a position anymore to do what they used to do with young artists. So as a venue, as a charity, we can step in and do an awful lot of that. 
in giving them not only performance opportunities but but broadcasting opportunities as well mm. uh, so I think there are many positives to to come out of this but you know we, we've all got to throw none of us are going to come, come back from this hundred percent and there is an ecology in music we rely on each other I think we've got to be very mindful of some of the more selfish commercial aspects of music making and the music business and I think some commercial entities have been burned very badly not just because of COVID but because they actually outstretched themselves or overreached themselves and we're big, there's a little bit of empire building going on here and there in the industry um, and unless you have a year's reserves or more in the bank you shouldn't be building an empire and uh, some organizations have learned that to their peril uh, in this period, so you've got to you've got to really be careful before you try to take over the whole world, um, particularly in the commercial music making world. And there are some, I think, there are harsh les lessons there, and I hope they've been learned because mm -hmm. we are all of us here to serve music. We have no other function. I have to have a public profile because I'm a fundraiser and an artistic director. I'd much rather be unseen. Um, but clamoring for public profile or clamoring for empire building when you're running an agency or when you're doing what should be a behind the scenes job, I think is misguided. And um, also becoming too corporate just in terms of brand. All of us, administrators, music managers, agents, we are here to serve the music. We have no other function uh, apart from some of us who have to fundraise and create programs, that sort of thing. And we need to be very careful about that. Well, you also have to be competing with so many other people who are trying to achieve the same in terms of organizations around the world. So you have to make sure you fabric, fabricate a, um, a personal message in all of this. But the, the other point that comes out of what you're just saying to me is that the Internet and all of the performances that are taking place online is a great leveler in so many ways. And there are so many performers now who are able to get in front of a public and develop a following, their own presence, that they haven't been able to do before. I think we've got to be careful. There was an awful lot of, of well-intentioned uh, live streaming going on from iPhones and things, particularly in the first month or two of lockdown. Uh, people got tired of that quite quickly. It was wonderful, but you need the, the proper sound. I heard, I remember hearing a very bad winterizer when I was maybe 11 and it almost put me off going to song recitals for life. And that was a live experience. So if, if the sound quality isn't right, if the recording conditions aren't right, we are in danger of putting people off. So I think we need to be very careful about uh, how we get our messages out there. Some, some were absolutely exemplary and I, I chair the Royal Philharmonic Society and it will be giving a number of awards to musicians and organizations which did, did this brilliantly in terms of their public outreach and made themselves better known in, in, in the process uh, during, during uh, lockdown, and, and that's just great. Well, John, I have to say, you are the most wonderful communicator and the greatest advocate for, for your, um, not only your hall, but your product, your philosophy, and I'd say for music in general. So I have to thank you very much indeed. It's been wonderful talking with you and I hope we get to talk to each other again sometime. Thank you very much indeed. A real pleasure. When I get to London next, I'm heading right for Wigmore Hall and, hopefully, I'll be having a drink with the wonderful John Gilhooley. 
If you're yet to experience this amazing venue, maybe a visit should be high on your post-COVID to-do list. Some of the most exceptional concerts I've ever heard have been in this beautiful space. Next time, my guest is a lady who has more than a few stories to tell about the classical music world. For decades, the ever-youthful and gracious Eleanor Hope has been one of Europe's most respected managers. Her first job in the business was as secretary to the legendary Yehudi Menuhin. And that was only the beginning. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you have been listening to A Stick With A Point.